Amen. Uh, we are going to be in Romans 5 at some point. Uh, that's the passage that we've been walking through every week. So if you want to go ahead and turn there. Uh, if you use your phone or an iPad or something, if you would like put on the do not disturb mode or whatever so you're not like tempted by your apps and notifications and all that good stuff. But um, the past four weeks now, we've looked at each of the different themes of Advent. We've looked at hope and peace. Last week we looked at love. And this week we're going to look at joy. Um, A lot of work and a lot of preparation went in uh, to my first child being born. A lot of a lot of stuff happened. There was doctor's appointments. Uh, there was getting the nursery ready. There was uh, the supplies we had to get. Lots and lots and lots of diapers. Like more diapers than we ever really needed. I don't think we bought diapers the first year because just we we just stored so many. Uh, a lot of preparation. Classes that we went to. I was talking about a class I went to uh, with Emily, preparing me as a dad and Emily. Emily as uh, a mom for the birth. And it was similar with the boys, with, with our twins, uh, but it, it was, there was something different and special about the first one. There was, there was joy and excitement uh, around the unknown of having a child, what that was going to be like, that wasn't really there with Oliver and Finn. It's different because they were twins, but we knew what to expect. We knew what was coming. So it was just like, hey, there are these babies. We're adding them in. But with Audrey, it was different. There was a lot of preparation that went in. And as I think about the Christmas story, I think about all the preparation that went into that. And it wasn't just Mary and Joseph going uh, to Bethlehem and not being able to find room in the inn and all the preparation for, for that baby, but thousands of years of preparation went in to the first Christmas. In the year uh, 1400 BC, Israel found itself living in Egypt as slaves to Pharaoh. And the reason I'm starting here, this is strange because if you've read Genesis, you know that there's a promise. God has promised Israel that he will bless them. He's promised them that they will be loved and helped and blessed by him, but they're enslaved to this Pharaoh in Egypt. And God also promises that somehow he would bless the entire world through these people. He would bless and love and help the whole world through the Israelites, but they're enslaved in Egypt. Exodus 1, chapter 11 says, the Egyptians set taskmasters taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pythium and Ramses. And in an effort to prevent these Israelites uh, from rising up against him or becoming too strong, Pharaoh decides that he's going to get rid of all the Israelite baby boys. And so in Exodus 1, 22, we see that Pharaoh commanded all his people. He said that every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile. Israel is struggling 1,400 years ago, Israel is feeling oppressed. They're feeling afflicted. 
They're not seeing a future. They're not seeing this promise that God has given them to love and bless and help them. They certainly are not seeing the goodness and faithfulness of God. And so maybe this is you this morning. Maybe this morning you're here, December's happened, whatever your circumstances are, you, you are struggling to see the goodness and faithfulness of God. You're not enslaved like the Israelites were, but you're feeling enslaved to your sin, feeling oppressed. It must have felt to the Israelites that God had abandoned them, that he had left them and had forgotten his promise. Even now, our world is a mess. Your life is a mess. You and I are a mess. This year, while it's held many joys and successes, has also held lots of pain and sadness and frustration. So the question must be asked, is there a God who really cares and can he do anything about all this? And so as we continue looking at the Israelites and the story progresses, we, we see in Exodus chapter 2, it says, the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groanings. God hears, and God knows what you're going through. No matter where you are and what you're going through, God is aware. He's not ignorant to what's going on in your heart and in your mind, in your relationships. He's very aware. He hears, he knows, and he intervenes. He gets involved. Moses was born an Israelite. He was born a slave, and he faced death from a murderous king. His mother wanted to save him, and so he, she put him in a basket and put him in the Nile River, the very river where all the Israelite babies were going to be thrown in and killed. She puts him in a basket, and the basket finds its way to Pharaoh's daughter. And she took Moses and raised him in the home of the man who wanted to kill him. Moses is raised among the Egyptians, and then one day he sees an Israelite being mistreated, and he attacks the Egyptian mistreating him and kills him. And he tries to hide the body, hoping to get away with it, but people find out, and because of this, he flees, he runs away. And Moses becomes a shepherd in the wilderness. And one day, while in the mountains, he sees a bush that's burning, but it's not being consumed. And he hears a voice. And from the fire, God speaks to Moses. And this is my paraphrase, but he says, I've heard the cries of my people. And I'm going to deliver them. I'm going to use you, Moses, to talk to Pharaoh for me. And Moses makes excuse after excuse and can't uh, find a way to get out of this. And God over and over again intervenes and says, you are weak. I know, I'm aware of how weak you are, but I am not, and I will be with you. And so Moses goes back to Egypt, and he confronts Pharaoh, and he tells Pharaoh, he says, God has told me to tell you to let his people go. And over and over again, we see this cycle with Pharaoh, where he, he's, no, I won't, and then, he, and then he says, yes, I will, but then he goes back on his word and says, no. You can't. And the reason Pharaoh does this is because he believes himself to be divine. Pharaoh thinks that he 
is a God and that he is more powerful than the God of Israel because he is the one that has enslaved these people. And so God intervenes over and over again by sending plagues. And each time God intervenes, he's proving himself to be real. He's showing the Israelites that he is in control of everything. And eventually, Pharaoh does let his people go. God started intervening for his people, not with the plagues, but in the mountains with Moses speaking to him through the burning bush before Israel had any idea what God was doing, he was involved. So maybe this Christmas season, we get so busy looking for the signs, looking for like the plagues, water turning into blood, looking for the things that God has done that we've missed what God is already doing. He has gotten involved We live in a society that continuously doesn't take God seriously and would rather have us follow the promises of commercials on TV. We'd rather have a Hallmark Christmas promise than the realities of the first Christmas. And despite the fact that we know all of these things will ultimately leave us feeling empty, we chase after it. Kendrick talked about that with a few weeks ago in his sermon on hope. We put our hope in so many things that ultimately leave us feeling empty and alone. The reality of the first Christmas was that God chose to intervene. He got involved to change the world. He doesn't leave us where we are. In Egypt, God started intervening by protecting a chosen baby from a murderous king. And that should sound very familiar to us. In Matthew, we read that after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, Behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? And when Herod heard this, he was troubled. And so once the wise men found Jesus and left for their own country, it says, An angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt. A little later on, it says, Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and all that region who were two years old and under. Very similar to Moses, God has intervened. God intervenes in the Christmas story by protecting a chosen baby from a murderous king to mark the beginning of another Exodus story. God is not distant, but deeply involved in our lives, so involved that he left glory to come and take on flesh and walk this earth with us. God heard the cries of his people and he got involved, which leads us to Romans 5. Romans 5 exists because of this baby, the word becoming flesh and dwelling among us. Luke chapter 2 verse 10 says, The angel said to them, talking to the shepherds, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. This good news is what we've been talking about, that God put on flesh and came into this world. He experienced everything we experienced. He suffered. He was tempted to sin, but didn't. He lived a perfect, sinless life in perfect obedience to everything that the Old Testament commanded us to do. 
Jesus did it. And he was accused of sin, even though he never did. By the very people he came to save, he was put to death to fulfill, to fulfill what the prophets had said. He did this for the joy set before him. The joy that was set before him was the salvation of his people. Jesus embraced the cross. He died as a substitute for his people and he died so that we didn't have to. He took the death that we deserve to die because of our sin and he bore that wrath. And he rose three days later, proving that he had defeated death and accomplished salvation for all who would believe in him. And so this good news that the angels are talking about in Luke 2 is meant to bring us joy. And not just any kind of joy, but great joy. Spurgeon said that every word in this passage is emphatic as if to show that the gospel is, above all things, intended to promote and will abundantly create the greatest possible joy in the human heart, wherever it is revealed. So in the middle of a world that is so depressing and full of so many distractions, we can know that the deepest overflowing joy in this world, we can know that joy. That's what Romans is all about. That's what this passage is about. It's not just how we get right with God, but it's how we get right with God and that, that being right with God causes us to sing. It overflows in passion that causes us to delight in God. Three times in this passage in Romans 5, Paul talks about what, it take, what, what the result of our salvation is. He talks about that. And and what he's talking about is the good stuff that comes out of our salvation overflowing and bursting out in joy. We see that in verse two. It says, through him we have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And he continues in verse three the second time. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance. And a little bit later on at the end of the passage, he says, more than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. This is written by a man who is deeply aware of suffering, deeply aware of the things that would cause us to be anxious in this world that would create depression, that would create anxiety and distraction. He's aware of it. He knows. But he's not describing his joy. He's describing Christian joy. This is basic Christianity. Basic Christianity is that we would be a rejoicing people. More often than we find ourselves relating to the depression and distraction and anxiety of the world. We're not conformed by this word. We are not conformed by the word. We're conformed by the world. We're not transformed by the renewing of our mind. Jesus said that out of the, the believer's life would flow streams of living water. But more often than, than not, we see that this isn't true of us. That kind of seems like make-believe. This flowing joy coming out of our lives seems like something that one day I'll get, but it's not here now. So my goal this morning isn't to beat us up over the joy that we don't have. That would be a terrible sermon. But my, my goal is to be a co-worker for your joy. That's what pastors do. We labor together for your joy. That's what's going on in our MC gatherings and in DNA 
and youth gatherings and the core group retreat coming up, prayer gatherings, all these things. We labor together for our joy. We need joy. If you don't have joy in your Christian life, you will fail. Guarantee it. You will fall short. The joy of the Lord is our strength. That's why over and over again, the Psalms point us to delight in the Lord because this is where our strength comes from. It's, it's like taking the gas out of a car. You will not get very far. The car, the Christian is fueled by joy and nothing else. And so we labor to increase our joy. It's vital that our joy be overflowing if we're going to be a successful Christian, if we're gonna walk this life and live our life obedient to the word of God to the day that we die, we must delight and find joy in this world. And the way Paul would increase our joy in this passage is by increasing our confidence. The reason that we have so little joy in this life, the reason that we do not delight in the Lord like we should is because our confidence in who the Lord is is so shaky and our faith is so little. If we only knew that when we died, the instant we died, we close our eyes in death, that boom, the glory of the Lord is before us and we're there. If we knew that, if we knew that every second of our life, that the Lord is working every millisecond, every action in your life for your good, if we knew that, the joy would overflow from that. If we knew, joy is an a natural overflow of the work that Jesus has already done. And so Romans 5 points us to that. And we're going to see in three ways. Paul wants to show how we find joy through the finished work of Christ, the ongoing work of the Father, and the ongoing work of the Spirit. We're going to see our joy through justification, suffering, and the work of the Spirit. The glory of the finished work of Christ we see in justification. Look at uh, verses one and two. It says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Justification here. What that means is, is declaring us righteous. The Lord is declaring you and I righteous. This is not God growing us like a gardener. We're not a plant in this. This is not God healing us like a doctor. Justification is not God paying for us like a banker would. Justification is, is a declaration over your entire life. He is declaring us righteous like a judge. This happens one time, once, for all of time, in a single moment. We have been justified by faith. And the text it says, through him we have obtained access by faith into this grace. And we stand, uh, in which we now stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. We have been justified by faith. And it's important that we, we pay attention to the, the word have in this, in this section. There's two words. It says, we have peace. And we looked at that a few weeks ago as well with Kendrick, what that peace looks like. This is not a, a fake kind of like happy feeling. You were an enemy of God and now you have peace. This is like a contract that now you, you were once an enemy and now you have been brought into the family of God. 
You have peace in a way that no other person has if you are in Christ. So we have peace when we also have grace. It says in in verse two, it says, we have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. We stand in grace for our whole life. Justification happens one time. It's not an ongoing process like sanctification. Justification happens once. When you become a believer, your whole life is now in grace. At your very best and your very worst, you stand in grace. It's not something that we use up at the end of every day and we need to get more of it the next day. You stand in grace. It is your entire life. Your whole world is made up of grace. The second you are justified by Christ, grace. When the Galatians were about to abandon the gospel, they were standing in grace. When Peter was, was denying the Lord three times, he was standing in grace. When the Corinthians were visiting prostitutes, they were standing in grace. At your very best and your very worst, there's nothing that you can do to shake off the grace of the Lord. You and your life are made up in this grace. We are united to grace because grace is a person. Each and every one of us stand united to Christ. Standing in grace causes us to rejoice. It gives us a confidence. We stand in grace knowing that no matter what we do, and we will fail, this is not telling us to go out and sin so that grace may continue. We will fail, but your Lord loves you and will constantly bring you back to himself. There's nothing that you can do to shake off his grace. We have confidence, and that should lead our hearts to be stirred to find joy in the Lord. We can have confidence that if we have been declared righteous through Jesus, we have been saved. This confidence gives us joy. And that joy, verse 2 says, we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. God's glory is when his inner excellence explodes and shines forth into this world. And we see that in creation. If you've seen the mountains, if you've seen the stars, they declare his handiwork. Creation screams of the glory of God. You and I, as humans, scream of the glory of God. His inner excellence is shining forth in us. We are made in his image. We see that, but there's no greater display of God's glory than in the person of Jesus Christ. The man who came and took on flesh and dwelt among us. He he caused the blind to see and the deaf to hear. He healed and forgave sin and brought the dead to life. And we see the excellence of the Lord shining forward in Jesus Christ. And so we can rejoice in our justification and know that we have been saved. We, we know that. That should lead our hearts to delight in the Lord. But that doesn't answer the question of suffering. What, what do we do when we suffer? How do we rejoice in suffering? Can we rejoice in suffering? And so we see the ongoing work of the Father. We've seen the work of the Son justifying us. And we see the ongoing work of the Father. Suffering is unlike anything else. When you 
you, you walk throughout your, your day, every single day, not ever thinking about breathing, not ever thinking about different parts of your body. You don't have to think about it. It's just there. But when you stub your toe, you can think about nothing else. If you have a back injury, you can't think about anything else but that back injury because your entire world is caught up in that. In that. And so that's what suffering is like. Suffering is a sore back or barren wound, broken relationships, divorce, death, a broken dream. All of these things, multiple of them at one time. And when they happen, you can think about nothing else. We don't see anything, and, and Satan would want to steal our joy. But suffering for the believer is different because we see a point. We don't suffer like the world because we see hope. It increases our hope. Look at verse 3. So we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. But not only that, we rejoice in the suffering, knowing that it produces endurance. And endurance produces character. And character produces hope. And hope produces does not put us to shame. When you go through suffering and you remain faithful, you remain a Christian, you end up with hope. You end up with confidence that you are actually a believer. The way this works is exactly how he lays it out here. Not only we, suffering produces endurance. When you see yourself walking through suffering and remain steadfast and faithful, not perfect, but walking faithfully with the Lord day in and day out, you recognize that your faith is real. All of a sudden, it's not complaining and, and moaning about the, the, the struggles that you have, but you see, I've, I've gone through this and I've remained faithful and I've worshiped the Lord. I must be real. This, this must be genuine in my heart. And it, it produces endurance. So, I know that, that running is not like everyone's favorite thing. I coach cross country. I enjoy running, but I, I don't run like I used to. But if you, if you run, or if you're thinking about running, New Year's is coming up. Uh, if, you, if you run a mile one day uh, and then makes it a little easier to run a little bit farther the next day. And so you can run a little bit farther. You can run two miles. And then if you continue day after day, you progress. You're able to run further and further every time. When we look back on our suffering and we remain faithful, we know that the Lord has brought us through it. And each time we remain faithful, it produces in us character. It produces in us character. Verse 4 says, uh, endurance produces character and character produces hope. Some translations read that it produces tested character or proven character. But character is developed in the making of small decisions every step along the way. Making the right choice in the small moments. Many of you, including myself, have been faced with the temptation to go back to our old life. Old relationships where you know that that guy or that girl is going to mistreat you leave you feeling empty to anxiety or drugs pornography 
we feel that temptation to, to return back to the, the old sin that we used to find our hope in. But now we, we know that Christ has set us free from every sin and that these things no longer control us and we can choose righteousness and, and that the, the times where we choose righteousness over and over again in those, in those small moments that seem insignificant, we're developing character, proving character. When you do this time and time again, you are creating in yourself proven character. It's the pattern of your life. It's changed. And so the endurance that the Lord is producing in you through suffering that you've seen, I've, I've been faithfully walking with the Lord through this. I've, I've suffered, but the Lord is still good, and I know it. And I'm going to choose the right and hard thing over and over again in the small moments. You have developed a character that is Christ-like. And the longer we see this in ourselves, the longer we see this proven character, the more we recognize that the Lord has saved us and is growing us, and this grows our hope. This proven character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts. Hope increases our joy. And we will, we will die. Every single one of us will die one day and close our eyes and we will not be disappointed. This hope builds in us this confidence that the Lord has saved us. Suffering does that in a way that no, nothing else can. So if you're suffering, this year has been miserable for some of you. There's been good highs and lows but overall, it's been tough. Continue to be steadfast. Walk faithfully with your Lord because he will produce character and hope in you that will outshine and outlast any suffering that you experience in this world. Which leads us to the ongoing work of the Spirit. We've been justified and that increases our hope our suffering increases our hope because we see the work of the Lord, but then we see the work of the Spirit. The Spirit pours out His love on us, and His love assures us that our hope will not be put to shame. Verse 5 says, And the hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has now been given to us. All of us, all of us have hoped in something that we have been ashamed of, that has left us feeling empty. But the Spirit speaks to our heart in a way that keeps us knowing that we will not be ashamed when Christ returns. He keeps that going in our hearts. What does the Spirit pouring out that love look like? It looks like Him reasoning with us. It's not just this warm fuzzy. It's not just this feeling. Sometimes it is that, but our feelings often lead us astray. The Spirit pours out His love on us by reasoning with us, by convincing us that the Word of God is true. And so in this passage, we see the Spirit reasoning with us, trying to convince us that our joy should only be found in the Lord. And so we see in verse 6, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, that perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 
Since therefore we have been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from him, from the wrath of God? For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we have been reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have received reconciliation. We have been reconciled. We have been made right with God. The culmination of Paul pointing us to joy, us finding our hope in in Christ is in this passage. We have been reconciled. We have been made right. We were objects of wrath. We were children of wrath. We were enemies of the Lord. But he, he intervened. He stepped in. He made a difference. If you have been saved, this is now defining your life. Not only have you been justified, you've been reconciled, and your, your world is not the same. You may struggle now in this life, but you can rest assured knowing that you will have peace with our Lord, that your suffering is not in vain, that you can rejoice in the Lord Jesus Christ, that we will be right with God forever. And this truth causes us to have lasting joy that goes far beyond our circumstances. The beauty of the Christmas story is not that it's not that it started thousands of years ago in a manger. The thousands of years of preparation doesn't end in a manger or on a cross. It hasn't ended. It will end when that baby, now a man, returns. So this Christmas, when you're opening your gifts and you're spending time with your family, you're eating a meal, or maybe you're not. Maybe you're alone. Hopefully no one in the crossing experiences being alone on Christmas. We're here as family, but if that's you. And, and all of this happens, all of the, the decorations start disappearing and you're left feeling empty. We can rejoice because through our suffering, we have hope that will not put us to shame. God has declared you righteous through Jesus and has given you his spirit to remind you of his saving grace. And so we light these candles each week, remembering these themes that we've seen. We've seen hope. So we light the first candle of hope, remembering that our hope is in Christ. And that everything else will disappoint us. And we remember peace. Remembering that Christ has pushed back the darkness and, and made a way for us to be right with him, to have peace despite our circumstances. And we remember love. That God loved us so much that he stepped in to our suffering and our sadness took on flesh and, and lived among us so that we could know him and we remember joy. That we find our joy only in Christ and that despite our suffering and the finished work of the Lord, we are right with the Lord. We are justified and we have grace. 
Let's pray. Father, thank you. God, thank you that you have made us right. Thank you that you have stepped into our sadness and, and our suffering. And you have opened, opened the way for us to have life, abundant life with you. God, help us to find our joy in you. Help us to rest in you. Please do this. Amen.